verse 1 through 5. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you have come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephath of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. And one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. We see in verse 2, God doesn't tell Moses, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if you come into the land, or if you're lucky, if you behave well, if you do X, Y, or Z. No, God tells Moses to tell them when, when you come into the land that you're going to inhabit. Again, the reminder here to us is that God does not abandon us when we sin. When we sin, when we fall short, God does not abandon us. We get things so twisted sometimes afterwards because of the devil condemning us. God didn't abandon us when we were dead in our sins, right? God's word tells us Jesus died for us while we were enemies and while we were dead in our sins. Yet so often when we sin now as believers, we think, eh, I might as well give up, right? I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'm going to stop going to church. God's just going to give up on me because I sinned. Not at all. If he was willing to die for you while you were an enemy and living a life of sin, he's not going to give up and he's not going to abandon us. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, it tells us, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's even when we sin and then we're convicted or the enemy comes and condemns us for our sins. We're going to live this life and we will sooner or later miss out on a blessing from the Lord because of our sins. We're not perfect. Sooner or later we can miss out on a promise that the Lord has laid for us. But because of our lack of faith, because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion, we can miss out on it. Here God is reminding the nation of Israel... Don't make a bad situation worse by spiraling out of control. Remind yourself, are you content with Jesus Christ? Right? I'm sure no one here has ever made a bad situation worse by spiraling out of control. Right? No one here. You're on a diet. You're doing well. You mess up. You had dessert. So what do you do? Ah, oh, forget it. Right? You drive to the buffet and you just go nuts. Right? Just forget it. I already messed it up. I'm not perfect. I lost 100%. So I'm just giving up on all of it. So often that's what we do. We need to control ourselves. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. We need to seek forgiveness in the Lord. That's the only way we'll be able to turn the page on our sins is by addressing them biblically. But then we need to plug back into Jesus Christ. And the reminder within Hebrews 13.5 is that we need to be able to be content with Jesus Christ, right? That's what Hebrews 13.5 is telling us. Don't let your conduct be with covetousness. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Are we content that we've gone from death to life? 
Are you content that you've gone from being blind to not being able to see? Am I content that I was once deaf and now I can hear? Or am I only seeking God for a specific promise or for a specific repair? It reminds me of the parable of the sower and the seed. There are some people, I'm sure none of us here, but the only reason we begin to seek out God, it's not for forgiveness of our sins. It's so that God would heal my marriage after I've done so many stupid things for years. And then if God doesn't do exactly what I say, oftentimes that person will just stop coming to church. We need to seek God, not for him to just fix our mistakes and our rebellion. We need to come to God because we love him and we're grateful that he's taken me from death to life. He's brought me from being blind to now being able to see. Oftentimes when we are content with Jesus... And with Jesus alone, he seems to bless us with the next step on our journey with him. Oftentimes people, they're stuck, they're stagnant in their journey with the Lord because they're not content with Jesus. It's Jesus, I need this job, I need this car, I need this guy, I need this girl, and then I'll be content. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't want to put us in a situation where we're going to have an idol right off the bat. We need to be able to be content with Jesus Christ. And God here is reminding Israel, hey, you need to be content with me. And we'll see at the end of the chapter, the love that Israel is supposed to have for the Israel's, the love Israel is supposed to have for the Lord, it's because God saved them out of Egypt. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus just because he saved you from your sins? If that's not enough for you to love him, something is very off in your relationship with him. Very off. We have to be careful with that. Israel, they've just gone through a major discipline from the Lord in this last chapter. Because of their lack of faith, because of their complaining, because of their murmuring, their disobedience, and their open rebellion against God. Right In the opening, we talked about how God's disciplined them. And now they have to wander for 38 years in the wilderness. That's a long time to think about their disobedience to the Lord, their rebellion to the Lord. They have to wander 38 years in the wilderness to all the corpses of the unbelieving generation drop. However, God is reminding them of his grace and mercy. He's still their people. And this is especially true for the context of Numbers 15 for the young people of Israel. Because everyone 19 and younger, they were still going to go into the promised land. God promised them, hey, I'm going to take you into the promised land. Maybe some of the young people, they got mixed up with Korah and they didn't get in the promised land. Or some of the other people, they get wiped out. But God was still having this promise of carrying these young people into the promised land. And God wanted them to stay fixed and focused on him and the journey that God was going to take them through. And in the midst of discipline, we need to be reminded, God loves you. God cares for you. He hasn't abandoned you. Don't spiral out of control. Look to the sacrifice and get back on the path. That's exactly what happens in verse 3 through 5. He reminds them of the sacrifices there to make. Verse 3, the burnt offering, the sacrifice to fulfill a vow or a free will offering. And your appointed feasts to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. In verse 4 and 5, we see him speaking of these different grain offerings and what they would go with in 
connection to the burnt offering or the sacrifice. If it was for a ram, if it was for a lamb, if it was for a bull, that grain offering of oil, flour, and wine would grow depending on how big of a sacrifice they'd bring to the Lord. But getting back on topic here, verse 3 through 5, God is reminding them that the way we have to deal with dealing with the consequences of our sins is to look to the sacrifice. If you're in a season where you're dealing with the consequences of your sins, you totally blew it. God wants you to look at the sacrifice. The burnt offering, this was for the person devoting themselves to the Lord. Lord, I give my life to you. I give this offering as a whole burnt offering for you. The sacrifice, that was to atone for someone's sins. I've sinned, so now I'm bringing this sacrifice before you, Lord. There are different sacrifices, and oftentimes the person making the sacrifice would partake of some of the meat with the Lord and also with the priest offering it. Both of these could also be made to the Lord out of a promise. Lord, I just want to make a vow to you. I want to make a promise to you, so here's the sacrifice. Or out of someone's free will, desiring to give God a little extra. The grain offerings, however, were meant to speak of thanksgiving and joy. Thanksgiving and joy for the Lord. And we can remember back in Exodus, God, he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then what does God give them right after the Ten Commandments and the law? He gives them the sacrificial system. And that's to remind us no one can be made perfect through the law. The only thing the law does is reveal to us that we're not perfect. That's the only thing that the law does. We cannot be more holy by appeasing the law. The law only reveals to us. It's a tutor all throughout the New Testament. It tells us to reveal to us that we need a perfect lamb to be sacrificed on behalf of our sins. And just as God was reminding the nation of Israel, hey, as you're dealing with your consequences, look to the sacrifice. God wants to remind us here, as you're dealing with your consequences because of your sin, be reminded to look at the sacrifice. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're reminded of the sacrifice for us to save us, to free us from our sins past tense, to save us from our sins future tense, today and even in the future after that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Verse 4 tells us, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offering for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have to go back to the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Every time we sin, every time we mess up, that's not the time to stop going to church. That's not the time to break fellowship. That's certainly not the time to put a pause on your devos or stop reading the Bible. That's all the more time to press into Jesus and be reminded of his sacrifice for us. That we would be sanctified through the offering of his body once for all. We can think of David, how David said, Lord, sacrifice an offering you don't desire. Why? In that period, with his sin with Bathsheba, with his sin of murdering Uriah, there was no sacrifice for that. There was no offering to bring David back into relationship with God because of those sins. But he just cried out to the Lord for his grace and mercy, and God met him there. In our sin, we need to press into the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. A couple pages to the right there. Hebrews 13, verse 15 and 16. It tells us, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Here we see some more sacrifices we can offer, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of dealing with the consequences of our sin. It's to give thanks to his name. It's to worship the Lord. Now's not the time to hear blues songs, right? All by myself. That's not the time to be listening to that, right? And just get more depressed listening to Death Cap for Cutie or whatever playlist you have for when you're depressed, that's not the time for that. That's the time for you to press into the Lord and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making those melodies in our heart and giving thanks to the Lord. We go back to Numbers 15, and we spoke of, right, spoke of a lamb and the offering and the grain and the wine. Verse 6 speaks of the ram you'll prepare as a grain offering to accompany the ram. You're going to offer two-tenths of an ephath of fine flour. Mix that with one-third of a hin of oil. And as a drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 8, when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord, then it shall be offered with the young bull, a grain offering. This time it grows a little bit more. This time it's three-tenths of an ephath, a fine flour mixed with a half a hin of oil. And you shall bring as a drink offering a half a hin of wine. It grows as well as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Here God's telling them the bigger the sacrifice you bring, the more flour, oil, and wine that's going to be sacrificed along with it. David Guzik, he mentions the offering of the ram and bull each needed progressively greater amounts of grain and wine to accompany them because they were progressively bigger sacrifices. The greater our sacrifice unto the Lord, the more thanksgiving and joy that should come along with the offering. That's what we mentioned earlier. The grain offering was a picture of thanksgiving and joy. God doesn't want us to ever make a big sacrifice and then be whining about it or complaining about it, much less boasting about it to someone else. Each time we make a sacrifice to the Lord, it should be accompanied with even more thanksgiving and more joy and more praise. 
And we don't really see whining or complaining throughout the Bible with the people who give the greatest sacrifices unto the Lord. The people that end up giving God the greatest sacrifices are usually the people that have the most thanksgiving and have the most joy for the Lord. You think of Paul and all that he sacrificed to follow God. And he says, hey, that's all dung. That's all rubbish. That is nothing compared to what it is to know him and to be known by him. Verse 11 through 16 says, Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, and each lamb, or young goat, according to the number that you prepare, so you shall do with everyone according to their number. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you. In ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. You see, the Pharisees and other Jewish religious leaders, they lost sight of this. They just saw Gentiles as just fodder for the fires of hell. God wanted to show his love and power through the Jewish people so that more people would be brought to him. And we can lose track of this too. Jesus did not save us so that we could go to church and then only have Christian friends and drive our Christian car. How do you know your car is a Christian car? It has a Christian bumper sticker, right? And only go to Christian school, only wear Christian clothes, and only go to Christian groups, and only go to Christian grocery stores, and only get Christian grass. That's not why God saved us. Gas, not grass. There's no such thing as Christian grass, right? God saved us to preach the gospel, not for us to stay in our little bubble and much less for us to look down on unbelievers. Mark 16 verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God did not save us for us to just be comfortable and create more comforts to add on top of us. God has saved us to go out into the world and preach the gospel. We've been talking about this recently without really looking for it. Matthew 19 and 20. Jesus tells them, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, family, we cannot look to unbelievers as our enemy. They're not the enemy. We were once just like them. And without Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, we are still exactly like them. We need to see them as the dead, blind, and deaf people we once were. They are other image bearers of God. They are made in the image of God, and we need to be praying for them and actively sharing the truth of the gospel. Again, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people that were in charge of the text, they lost sight of this. They completely lost sight of this. And we can lose sight of this as well. 
Don't be grossed out that you're next to an unbeliever. Don't be looking down at them. Our heart should have compassion for them, praying for them, and sharing the gospel. We need to have our group of believers to sharpen one another, to stay safe and to grow, but we can't lose track of our mission. We need to go out and preach the gospel. Verse 17 through 21 It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. In verse 18 we see this once again. God doesn't say if you come into the land. He says when you come into the land. When I bring you to this land, this is what you need to do. You need to offer this sacrifice with the very first bread and with the very first ground meal. Offer it up unto me. And even if we've blown it, Even if we've blown it and we've missed out on some of God's promises here on earth because of our sins, because of the consequences of our sins, don't throw a pity party. Look forward to heaven and try to get as many people there as possible. We can look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Again, God saved us for the purpose of knowing him more. Being conformed to the image of his son, God saved us for the purpose of sharing and preaching the gospel. And he saved us for the purpose of one day being in heaven with him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We'll read verse 4 through 10. It tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But here, right in the middle of this text that we read, it's so that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For the ages to come. It's good. It's important for us to look to heaven. Right? On Sunday we looked at it's important to meditate on hell. Tonight we're being reminded it's important to meditate on heaven. And what heaven is going to be like. To be reminded this is not our home. And if you've tasted deep consequences because of your sin. Perhaps you've lost a marriage. You've lost relationship with family. You've lost a job. You've lost something else because of the consequences of your sin. Again, don't throw a pity party. Look to heaven. 
Look to heaven and think of the ages and ages to come that he's raised us up together and one day he will make us to sit down together in heavenly places with him. Look to heaven. I encourage you, if you've lost so much because of the consequences of your sin, I encourage you, get lost in the mission of bringing more of the lost to Jesus Christ. Just get lost in that. Don't get lost in everything that you've lost. No, get lost in being able to get as many people to heaven as you can. Verse 22, we get different laws for different types of sin here. Verse 22 through 29, it tells us, If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, All that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations. Then it will be if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. So that portion is for if a group collectively is committing sin unintentionally. Verse 26 through 29, it tells us, It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it unintentionally. And if a person, now it's singular, one person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally, And when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. This is interesting because I believe more than ever before, we think all that matters is our intentions. Right? That's not what I intended, so I really didn't do anything wrong here. That's not what they intended. They had better hopes. They had better dreams. It was just a mix-up. It was a little mistake. And here what God's telling us is that our intentions do not matter when it comes to sin. Sin is still sin. And wrong is still wrong. And it must be dealt with biblically. And we have to be careful. I think this can creep into the hearts of parents and family members very often. They don't really mean that. Right? Oftentimes, husbands, we can stick our foot in our mouth and we don't really mean what we're saying to our wives. But if you're a wise husband, you still ask for forgiveness. You still repent. You still seek for that relationship to be mended. You don't just stand in your pride and say, I didn't really mean that and walk away. Because nothing's going to be changed. And it's the same with our sins. It is still sin if you're doing it on purpose or if you're doing it without knowing that it is a sin. It is still sin. It is still missing the mark. It's still not being obedient to God and His law. And the only way to make a sin right in the Old Testament was to offer a sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. 
unintentionally or intentionally. For us today, we have Jesus as our sacrifice. We look to the sacrifice, but James chapter 5, verse 16, it tells us, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you sinned against another brother or sister and it was unintentional, which half of the times it really is unintentional and the other half of the times are just trying to feel better about ourselves, right? You still have to ask for forgiveness. You still have to seek restoration. We talk about this in a, in a way that hits us real close to home, right? Does a car accident matter if it was a mistake? Someone hits your car and, whoops, it was a mistake. I didn't intentionally hit your car, right? It's okay. We shake hands. We just talk to each other. I told your car, whoopsie-daisy, it's all right, right? No. You're going to call the cops. You're going to call the adjuster. You're going to get the insurance involved because there's still pain. There's still problems. There's still wreckage because it is sin. And we have to be careful. We can't allow this lie from the world to creep into us that all that matters is your heart. God looks at the heart, right? We say that so often so that we can appease the guilt for our sins, but it does nothing to change the fact that it is still sin. And it will not change the fact in our separation from God because of our sin. David Guzik, he says, Today in the church, many a gossip, many a talebearer, many a divisive person will claim the best of intentions. Even if we agree they have the right intentions, they may still be in grievous sin. The same applies for the myriad of other sins we are often ready to ignore or think lightly of all on the basis of, after all, they had good intentions. We have to make sure we're looking at things in a biblical manner. And intentions don't matter. Sin is still sin. And it must be dealt with biblically. Now in verse 30 through 31, we see how God deals with presumptuous sin. Presumptuous sin, it speaks of just flagrant rebellion against the Lord. It is literally to sin with a high hand. And today in our nation, we literally have a whole month that is presumptuous sin month. That's what June is. It is presumptuous sin month. This is our sin and we're proud of it. That's what it is. And today there's many in our nation, many believers that are sinning presumptuously. They are sticking their noses against God. It is flagrant rebellion against God and what his word entails. Verse 30 tells us, But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he's a native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord, and he has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Again, what a difference. Unintentional sin, it still needs to be dealt with. It doesn't just go away. God doesn't just turn a blind eye towards it. But now presumptuous sin? Someone sticking their nose at God, someone being flagrant to just go against the word of God, there's no room for that. They need to be completely cut off until they seek repentance and restoration with the Lord. Let's turn back to the book of Hebrews. We've been there a lot tonight. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's exactly what presumptuous sin is. It's turning our nose up at God. We're being flagrant, we're being arrogant about it. And God, he's not going to mess with that. The arrogant, the prideful in heart, God hates that. There's no room. There needs to be humility and brokenness in order to turn back and come back to the Lord. And in our own families, we should not be making room for people that call themselves believers and are conducting and living in presumptuous sin. No matter what any other so-called church may say or any other believer should say, presumptuous sin has no room before the Lord. Verse 32 now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, he gives us an example here of presumptuous sin. And here it's something maybe small in many of our eyes. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Right? We don't know what this guy was doing. Making a fire, wanting s'mores. He was cold, right? We don't know what's happening, right? But he's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Are you supposed to gather sticks on the Sabbath day? No, you guys know it. He knew it. The nation of Israel knew it. And those who found him gathering sticks, they bring him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. They've never had to deal with this before. Then verse 35, the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones. And in case you didn't catch it, and he died, right? That's what it tells us there in verse 36. Again, God does not make room for presumptuous sin. And here's a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And God says he knows better. And Israel, you all know better. Why are you allowing this to happen? Right away, he must be put to death. This is what sinning with a high hand is, right? This is what being arrogant against the Lord. I don't care what your word says. I don't care that your word says that there's a Sabbath. Now for us, New Testament, who's our Sabbath? It's Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath. If we catch you making a fire on Sunday, no one's knocking on your door, right? That, that's not what it's about. Jesus is our Sabbath now. But for the nation of Israel, they were not to allow any room for people sinning presumptuously against the Lord. It must be put to death. 
And this shows us that there's no sin that does not have consequence and bleed into the rest of the nation. Nothing crazy here. He's not getting drunk. It's not sexual immorality. God, he's gathering sticks on a Saturday. Is that really that big of a deal? Again, this reveals to us that sin, it will grow in the camp. And if there's any sin in our lives, this is what we should do. Eradicate it. Stone it with stones until it dies. That's what we should do. If there's any sin in our lives. Now, it's interesting because God didn't just have Moses stone him. God didn't just have Moses and Aaron stone him. God didn't just have Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders. But the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. God wanted the whole nation to know there's consequences for their sins. God wanted the whole nation to know there's no room for presumptuous sin. It's also a reminder to us we should deal with sin when it's in front of us. So often we see sin in someone and we wait and we call somebody else. Who's the sin police, right? Who's the sin police in my family? I'm noticing the sin with my brother or my sister, but I'm going to wait to deal with it till I call my mom or dad. No, you should deal with it. Biblically, you should deal with it. There's sin in the church. Someone did X, Y, or Z. Who's the sin police? I'll call the pastors. I'll bring it before the pastors, right? But then what happens? In the time it takes for that person to notify the pastors, the person that's in sin may have affected many other people in the time that it takes to get there. And that's why each of us, we need to deal with our brothers and sisters. May we not be like Cain that says, hey, am I my brother's keeper? Am I really supposed to call out my brother if they're sinning? Yeah, you are. We're supposed to sharpen one another. We're supposed to care for one another. We're supposed to care for the family. You don't hit them with a rock, but you talk with them, right? You pray with them. You hit them with the truth and say, hey, what you're doing is sinful. You go to Matthew, you talk with them one-on-one. -on -one. If they hear you, you've won the brother. They don't listen to you, you grab a brother or a sister. And now you come with a group of people, hey, this is what you're doing. Do you realize what you're doing? If you've won them over, you've gained over that brother or sister. If they're still stuck in their pride, that's when you bring a pastor and a church leader into the situation. But every single one of us are apt and ready to deal with sin in our sphere of influence. Every single one of us are apt to do it. That's what God is doing with the whole nation, putting this man to death. Finally, we come to verse 37. And here God gives these little reminders to the nation of Israel on what they're to keep their eyes on and to who they belong to. They belong to God and they needed to keep their eyes on the promised land, the holy land, the land that they would one day go into. Verse 37, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you may not follow the harlot tree to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. 
God wanted them to have this blue thread because it was the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with a blue cloth. God also wanted them to think of the heavens, to look at the sky and think, that's where I belong. That's my home. That's on the corners of my clothing to remind us of who we belong to. And we should be reminded this world is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. What treasures are we laying up for ourselves in heaven? In verse 39, I think it answers a question to us. Is man innately good? Is our heart innately good if we're left alone by ourselves? Do we just do great things? I don't know about my kids. They're like their dad, so they're sinners, right? But I don't know about your kids. When you leave your kids alone and unattended, does the house get clean? Do they do their laundry? Is everything perfect? They pay the bills. They do all the stuff, right? No, sin breaks out. Evil breaks out. Someone's hurt. Someone's fighting. Someone's crying. Someone's biting someone else. Right? That's what happens when you leave them unintended. And here God is warning them, hey, you're going to have these tassels that you look upon them and remember all the commandments of the Lord. And don't just remember them. Remember them and do them. That you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. These people, they've been changed. They're God's people at this point, right? God's taken them from slaves. Now they're a nation of Israel. God's taken them through the sacrifices. God's taken them say, hey, this is where you camp. These are the two trumpets. This means that. This means the third. This is your job. This is your job. They are now God's people, but their hearts and their eyes are still inclined to sin. And that's one reminder we always need to be reminded of. Our greatest enemy is a double agent living inside of each and every one of us. And when we let our guard down, when we're prideful, when we think we're above this sin or that sin, oh, I'll never get tempted in that again. God's word warns us, watch out, you're going to fall. We need to be reminded there's a double agent living inside of each and every one of us. That's why we should give no provision to the flesh. Give no provision to the flesh. We need to starve that guy as much as possible. And we need to be reminded about the Lord's commandments, be in the word, and we need to do them. Finally, verse 41, the Lord reminds them, hey, I am the Lord your God. Be reminded, what did I do for you? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why did I bring you out of the land of Egypt? To be your God. I am the Lord your God. And we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of who we belong to. And all that he's done for us. This goes all the way back to the idea of contentment. Are we content with the fact that Jesus died for us and saved us so that we'd be in a relationship with him? If that's not enough to have joy, if that's not enough to have happiness, there's something wrong within our hearts that we need to allow the Lord to address. We need to bring that before him and get right with him. The other thing here is listening to a teaching from Damien Kyle, and it's so true. This is where the people that are rigid and everything about the Bible is just rules and regulations. you got to keep more rules. you got to keep more regulations. They will never understand that the way we grow in obedience to the Lord is growing in our love for the Lord. You see, the more that we love Him, the more we're going to do for Him freely in a carefree way. 
Right? You think of a mom with a newborn baby. Does she not love that small child and do way more than any of us are willing to do for any other human being out there? Why? Because of the love that's there for that mom and that little baby. Right? Lots of the different young adults, lots of people here, they've started dating, their relationships engaged. They'll do anything for each other, right? They'll start matching, they'll wear the same clothes, right? They come together, they do this, they do that. Love does so much for one another. We don't view it as a sacrifice. We view it as, man, I get to do this for this person that I can't believe they love me. And that's how we grow in obedience to the Lord. It's not a list of rules and regulations. You got to do this. You got to do that. No, it's growing in our love and appreciation for what God has done for us. So Numbers 15, if you've messed up, if you've blown it, welcome to the club. We all have, right? Do you just sit there? Do you just stew in it? No, you go back. You confess your sins before the Lord. You confess your sins to your brother or sister, whoever you've harmed and done wrong, and keep following the Lord. Look to his sacrifice, look to heaven, and keep walking by faith.